Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. This is the book that we've been given. And over time, not only have there been lots of confusing passages that we've encountered as Christians, um, but there have unfortunate times when these passages, some of them have been misused. Um, not only misunderstood, but misused um, harmfully to oppress people, to, to quiet people, to put people down. Um, if we went around the room, I think even with our group here this morning, we probably could share stories about times when the church has hurt us. Um, when perhaps a Bible verse or a passage in the Bible has been wielded in such a way as to um, put us down or make us feel not important or to keep our voice from being heard. Um, this is inherently the danger to any sort of authority or power. Um, and religious authority comes with the added weight of God. Um, you know, people speak about what's the hardest type of public speaking. Most people don't like public speaking. But even in public speaking, there's different realms. I happen to think that comedians have the hardest job as public speakers because they have to get up in front of a crowd that is usually not giving them much respect and just sitting there saying, make me laugh. I don't know if you've ever been in front of a group of people and tried to make them laugh. I have, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. It's hard to do. It's hard to predict. And if that's all you have going for you, if that's your only role in that situation, I can just imagine the bombing and just the pressure that would collapse in on you. Preachers, preaching is hard, it's difficult, but we have it a little bit easier because most of our audience, most of the time, thinks that God is somehow invested in what we're saying. This is a pretty big leg up for people who get in front of others and speak. That, that perhaps they have some sort of authority on, on God's part in what they're saying and what they're presenting. Um, but with any kind of authority or power comes the, the ability of humans to corrupt or to mishandle or to use inappropriately. Um, people are given the bully pulpit. I was talking to a, a minister this week who was complaining about... Um, his church being too concerned with bylaws and other policies and procedures and not enough with like actual ministry on the streets, feeding the homeless, clothing the naked. And as a much more mature, experienced pastor, I gave him my advice, um, <laughs> which was that uh, while I share his, his under, I can understand what he's thinking and I, I want to share that sentiment. But I've found through a couple bylaw revisions in our church, one of which I was fairly involved in, was that they're actually very important that they actually are the foundation for what ministry will happen and whether it will be able to happen and happen effectively and efficiently. Um, because those bylaws, they, they do something. Constitutions do something. They distinguish who has the power to do what. And without something in place, it's not like no one will take power. It's just there'll be no clear rules for how people have power, for how people make decisions. And things get very murky very quickly. Um, and the history of the Bible being interpreted interpreted comes with many examples of passages that have been interpreted, um, not only in wrong ways or in correct ways, but also in ways that sometimes are harmful or hurtful, that put a black eye on Christianity as a group. Um, so we're going through this sermon series. We'll look at four different passages or topics um, that have been um, confusing, misunderstood, and perhaps even misused. And we come today to our first one. This was by far the most requested out of all of them, and it is concerning the relationship Christians have or should have with the government or with politics. I think it's a big surprise why anyone would care about politics these days. 
um, why we might be wondering about how we should engage in politics and treat one another in this very hyper-partisan world um, as Christians. And so this morning we turn to um, one of the perhaps most um, misused and one of the most confusing passages in the Bible, which is Romans 13. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to Romans chapter 13. Now, my career in ministry took a weird turn in grad school, and so this passage is probably one of, if not the passage that I've written and spoken about the most. Um, and I continue to, to learn new things and to be challenged in new ways as I look at it. Um, it is a passage that lays out some form of a summary statement about what the government is and what it should be doing and how Christians should relate to that government. And so I want to explore it this morning. I want to look at how it is often translated, look at some ways perhaps it can be better translated, and then draw a few broad but I think important conclusions for you and I as we try to, as faithful Christians, navigate this political and sometimes hyper-political world that we find ourselves in. So Romans chapter 13, um, verse 1 through 7, reads like this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, the government, is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, submission, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers, or servants of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now, the standard traditional interpretation of this verse, which came about around the 4th century, um, when Constantine became a Christian and um, Christianity became somewhat of the official kind of uniting religion of the, the Roman Empire, um, is, could be boiled down to this kind of phrase. Resisting the government is similar to, if not the same, as resisting God himself. <clears throat> that Christians and all people are called to submit to the government, to support the government, perhaps to even obey the government, because <laughs> to do otherwise would be to work against God's own purposes. And you can see how people might draw this conclusion. He says, submit to the governing authorities. They have power, and they have the power because God gave them that power. And they have something to do in the world. And if, if you are concerned about what they're doing, he says you shouldn't be if you just do good. If you just do what you're asked to do. Now this tradition, this interpretation, um, raises lots of questions, particularly as we see it used throughout history. Um, it, it kind of, in one sense, narrows itself down to a might-makes-right understanding of politics and authority. Um, whoever's in charge at this moment gets to claim God's God's authority behind them. Whether they got there in a good way or a bad way, might here makes right. And because we're in charge, because we have the authority, you are to support. You are to submit. 
you are to be subject to. You are to obey. Now, the different synonyms I'm using here are important because these words that are used are very important. They often get paraphrased, and when things get paraphrased or translated loosely, um, some big consequences can come about. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that our Attorney General Jeff Sessions cited Romans 13 um, when holding a press conference or answering questions about the very controversial child detention immigration policies at the border. Um, he said, I would refer you to Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul says to obey your government, um, that they are putting rules in place to help society, to reward those who do good and punish those who do bad, to keep order in the world. Um, and many in the biblical world rightly kind of <clears throat> coughed their throats and said, it might seem like a small thing, but Romans 13 nowhere says to obey your government. There's no carte blanche check written in Romans 13 that says if the government tells you to do something, you must do it. And yet, it's perhaps easily understandable as to why someone might come to paraphrase Romans 13 in this way. If we look at how this passage has been used throughout history, questions start to arise very quickly. Um, for instance, a big <coughs> turning point in the use of um, Romans 13, um, there have been a couple big historical turning points. One came with the American Revolution. Um, the American Revolution, when the um, colonies in America decided they were fed up with taxation, with that representation. I'm not a historian, I'm not a politician, so if I don't know all these deals perfectly, uh, you can inform me later. Um, Jake likes to take those type of complaints, and then he will funnel them down to me. Um, so they end up rebelling. Um, they start a war, revolutionary war, violent kind of revolution. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, perhaps we're unaware of things like this, but Britain, both before and during the revolution, obviously did not want to lose these colonies and the tax revenue they were getting from them. And so they pulled out a Bible verse, Romans 13. And they said, hey, you should be subject. You should submit to the governing authorities. We only have authority because God gave us that authority to do good in the world. And so what we're doing is supposed to be doing good. If you're resisting us, you're resisting God and, and the authority he's set up. And Great Britain did what is often not done even now today is they looked at these last couple of verses in this passage. Oftentimes when you see this talked about in various contexts in the modern world, we stop at verse 4. We stop at verse 4 because the next couple of verses get a lot more specific and a lot more uncomfortable for us. If you just go to this passage and ask the simple question, what does Paul want to happen because of writing this to the Christians in Rome? The answer is pretty clear. He wants them to pay their taxes. The situation in Rome is such that Rome, which is a pretty evil empire, which would tax uh, pretty much the mess out of um, people in their empire, particularly non-citizens, um, were constantly facing violent revolutions because of these taxes. And we know in this time period when Paul is writing, there is another one of these threats. People are, are starting to revolt and threaten revolts if the Romans try to take this kind of money from them. And Paul wants the Christians to understand this. Whatever you do, whatever's happening, whatever's in your minds, just hand over the money. Hand over the money. Don't draw swords. Don't, don't throw fists. Just pay your taxes. Don't be violent. Don't get into this revolutionary war. Just pay your taxes. Now, there might be many reasons Paul wants to say that to them. Perhaps he doesn't want Christians to get a bad reputation. As 
people who are unruly in society. Perhaps Paul is simply being more practical here, which is if you get into conflicts like this, you will be destroyed. Um, the Romans don't really have an equal when it comes to war and conflict, particularly this little <coughs> Christian group that has no like army or militia or anything like that. If you want to pick this fight, they'll pick it too, and they'll, they'll win it. But he says, no, pay your taxes here. And, and Britain during the, the revolution was keen on going all the way through to the end of this passage here. And yet, we, we still revolted. And yet, we celebrate that on July 4th. The question is raised, are, when we're celebrating on July 4th our independence, are we celebrating something sinful? Are we celebrating somebody not obeying the governing authorities? Are we celebrating someone resisting the authorities and thus resisting God? Another big turning point in the history of interpretation of Romans 13 comes when, when you have the Nazi regime rise up in Germany with Hitler at its head. Perhaps, again, we're unaware of this, but when Hitler is trying to gin up support and compliance um, for his, his agenda of genocide, he wields Romans 13. At the time of the, the, the Holocaust, Germany was the most Christian nation in the world. This is a very common assumption. Um, missiologists, people who study missions and how other people get converted and how you might change a society, a culture, they often use Germany as a startling example, kind of the lodestar to follow and how we might evangelize. This is how you do it right. This is how you make an entire nation Christian. And then within years... This nation was either helping or turning a blind eye to one of the biggest atrocities in world history, in the Holocaust. Now, there were some Christians who resisted. There were some churches who resisted. And we might ask again if the standard interpretation is correct, were they sinning? I mean, were they doing something wrong by resisting Hitler and his regime? Were they somehow resisting God in an unlawful way? The last example we could throw dozens around is the institution of slavery. When slavery was on the chopping block in American history not too long ago, those who wished to keep slavery often brandished as a weapon Romans 13. And said these are the laws. And if there are laws and authorities put in place, they should be followed. They are good. They're meant to make society better. And to resist the laws, to resist the authorities, is to inherently resist God himself. Now we have uh, biblical stories and passages that bring up questions as well. The apostles themselves commonly disobey the Roman Empire. They're in prison all the time. They're killed by the Roman Empire for not going along. Um, Paul himself is, uh, who writes this passage, is eventually killed by the Roman Empire for not obeying them. He's put to death by them. So we might wonder if there is some sort of much gray area, if we're maybe being too simplistic in our interpretation of this. A principle is actually laid down that's become very important for Christians. In Acts 5, the apostles um, are confronted by authorities who say, look, we've told you to stop preaching about this Jesus man. Why do you insist to keep doing this? And they say this. This has a long Old Testament background to it, but it's an important part of this New Testament puzzle. They say, we must obey God over man. The principle laid out is that if 
man, whether in a government or an individual, tells you to do one thing and God calls you to do another thing, your choice is clear. You obey God. He's a higher allegiance. You have a higher priority. You disobey that governing authority. But we might wonder, what is there in Romans 13 that might allow such a, such a principle, such an idea that we must obey God over the authorities, that perhaps their purposes are at odds at times? I want to point out a couple things in Romans 13 that might get us to a better interpretation. The first one is in verse 1. In verse 1 it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This word has been translated or paraphrased in different ways. Let everyone be submissive to the governing authorities. Let everyone submit. Let everyone be subject. Um, this word is um, very importantly not referring to obedience. So it's some sort of blind obedience or blind loyalty. It's a word that implies and has connotations of order. Um, he says, look, the governors are on top and you're on the bottom as Christians. And you need to recognize this is the order. You need to be okay with this. This is where you are. This is where they are. This is how the shots get called. This is how the cookie will crumble. Now, this is in the first century. Paul probably could not have imagined a democracy where all the people who make up the government have some kind of role to play in forming the government. This would have been new to Paul. He perhaps would have formulated his words a little bit differently. Paul also probably could not have imagined a situation in which the emperor becomes a Christian. And again, there's some conflation between the government and Christianity. This time, there's two distinct groups. We just be subject to, be underneath their authority, be submissive. Now, um, Paul um, is getting at a very important principle that's illustrated even more. If we just look at one more word before we get into it. When he talks about the governing authorities in verse 1, he says... All of them that exist have been instituted by God. This is also a highly um, charged word, difficult to understand, difficult to translate. Um, we note here one reaction, um, one way of interpreting Romans 13 to try to avoid the problem of Hitler, the problem of slavery, has been to say that only governments who perform positive functions, such as the ones listed in Romans 13, only the ones who protect the good and punish the evil, only they have real authority from God. The issue is that's not what the text says. It very clearly is inclusive. Is there's no authority except from God. None. There's not one government that exists except because God has chosen for it to exist. In fact, those that have been in existence, we are told, have been instituted by God. This sometimes translated as ordained or put into place. Together, these two words, I think, give us a clue about what's happening in Romans 13. To be subject to an authority instituted by God. Now, this word, instituted by God, I think is best understood not as um, chosen by God, not as created by God, but as put in order or ordered. Um, John Howard Yoder, um, as he explores this text, uses the analogy of a librarian to try to understand what God's doing with the nations, with the governing authorities. And he says this, the librarian who puts in order the books, they don't make the books. They don't write the books. They don't necessarily approve of them or agree with them. They simply put them in the right place. They put them where they're supposed to be. The idea here 
But Paul seems to be getting at is that what God is doing with the governing authorities, both good and bad, both those who do better and those who do worse, is he is using them for his own purposes, sometimes despite their own will. He is, in his providence, and his ability to guide history towards its directed end, is able to use different empires. He's able to use the Roman Empire, who again is an evil, unjust empire. The Roman Empire, the one who killed God himself in the flesh, Jesus. This is not a just empire, and yet God uses them. He puts them in the right place. He orders them in just the right way that salvation comes through them. I don't think God is saying, I approve of killing innocent men, and I approve of a government putting to death me in the flesh. He's saying, no, 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 I've ordered it so. But even despite their purposes or intentions, my will will be accomplished. There's an Old Testament background to this idea, this providence through nations. And a lot of how we interpret Romans 13 depends on what we think of as the Old Testament background to these authorities. If we think that they are Israel, the nation of Israel, then we have a more positive view of them. God spoke to Israel directly. God commanded Israel to do certain things. It's not hard to separate out what God's will is and what Israel was commanded to do. Instead, though, it seems the more likely Old Testament background here to these authorities are Old Testament nations like Assyria and Babylon. Evil empires like the Roman Empire. Empires that did horrendous things that God did not approve of. But yet God, sometimes in a confusing manner, sometimes in an ambiguous manner, says, I'll use. And so the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, these violent, vicious empires, God will say, I don't approve of how you're treating people, but I'll use it. If you're going to act like this, I'll allow you to be a form of judgment against my people. When they have strayed from me, I'll allow you to kick them out of the land. I'll allow you to punish them. There's a lot of prophetic uh, literature that illustrates these points in in graphic and and, um, detailed um, precision. The important point here is this. At no point did God ever seem to approve of these empires. At no point did God ever say, I like the Assyrian Empire. I like the Babylonian Empire. They're doing good things in the world. He says what? No, the librarian, as the God of creation, in my providence, I'll order things exactly the way they need to be ordered. And despite your intentions, I'll use them for my own purposes. When God institutes these authorities, they've been instituted by God. Paul is saying that we can trust that God will accomplish his purposes with them, through them, perhaps even despite them. And so then he says, be subject to them. Be subject to these authorities. How might we be subject to these authorities if we were to obey God over man, if there's some conflicting commands being given. The answer comes with a term that, perhaps to our detriment, slowly and surely has come out of our vocabulary. The answer is called civil disobedience. There's a way in which you can disobey a government order and say, I have to obey God and not man, that at the same time submits to their authority but at the same time recognizes that they are above you. That God has put them in place to do certain things at this time in history. It's a a principle we see in Acts, Acts chapter 5. 
the apostles don't ever violently resist the officials, the Roman officials. They don't ever try to overthrow them in some kind of violent revolution. They say, if this is the law, I'm breaking it. And I'm accepting the punishment. It's civil. I still accept your authority, which means I accept whatever punishment you're going to give me because of my disobedience. It's out in public. They do it willingly. They don't try to hide it or do it in secret or subvert the government in any way. They simply say, we're not doing that. And as our authority, you must do with us as you wish. And so they go to prison and they sing. They get executed and they praise. They never once feel like they're somehow resisting God by disobeying these um, laws or rules or policies from the empire. Martin Luther King Jr. gives us an excellent example of, of civil disobedience. He once said this, and I, I, I always found this quote to be very important. He said, An individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly and with a willingness to accept the penalty. Um, in the classroom, I see this a lot. There's students who cheat. I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, students sometimes don't always study as they should and find it easier to just look at their neighbor's uh, piece of paper. They often think it's a lot harder to catch than it is. Um, you know, I don't have to even look out of the class as they take a quiz. As I'm grading, without trying to catch people, I'm grading, I grade a paper, seven papers later, I see they have the exact same answers, and two of them are really weird answers. That's very unlikely two students of their own would come to. And then the way they answered the question, even the way they wrote it down on the piece of paper, right? They put A next to every question, and then underneath this one, instead of writing out A, they wrote true underneath the line. And it becomes so clear, right? I mean, I don't have to try. You're just going along, and teachers can back me up on this, and you go, okay, I don't know who these kids are, I don't know the names, but they were sitting next to each other. These are copies of the same quiz, the same test. And you can observe a pattern very quickly. You don't intervene. There's going to be some same grades coming from those students. Good or sometimes, surprisingly, sometimes cheaters do pretty bad on tests. And you're like, if you're going to go through this effort, at least you could, you could do it a little better. Um, break a law in public, in open, and be willing to accept the consequences. There are others who have come to me and said, look, I didn't study. I don't know any of these answers. Give me a zero. I, I can't follow the orders here. I can't be the student you've asked me to be right now. But I'll do so openly, honestly, willing to accept the punishment. Or someone who is, instead of trying to hide as they cheat and then deny it, when called upon it, says, yeah, I'm sorry. I cheated. I deserve the zero. I deserve the report going to that dean. This idea of civil disobedience. Where God's commands and the commands of the government, the authorities, the laws, the policies, when they encounter tension between them, you and I are called to a higher light allegiance, to a higher authority. We're called to obey government, God over government. But to do so in a non-violent way. To do so in a way that still respects these authorities that we have over us. This is why Christianity has a large tradition of martyrdom. Where people say, no, we, we won't do that. But if the punishment is death, then that's the punishment. We respect 
the authority that you have over us. Not in like an emotional respect way, but just to know this is how it is. You're over and we're under. And we obey God and we accept what comes from it. We're probably on good grounds interpreting Romans 13 in this way because of the example of the apostles and even Paul himself. Paul consistently civilly disobeys and is punished accordingly, eventually giving his life for his allegiance to Christ and his kingdom over the government. So as we wrap up, let me draw some larger, broader conclusions about our relationship to the government, to our hyper-political partisan world that we live in right now, and how we might faithfully be Christ's people in the midst of that. The first conclusion I would draw is this. We can't allow the more confusing or ambiguous situation of the government to cloud or confuse the clear call we have in Jesus and his kingdom. The government will ask us various things. The government will change positions on various things. But what we've been called to do and to be and how we're called to live and act is pretty clear for the most part. And it doesn't change. And it always holds highest priority for us. At all times and in every situation, we're called to love. To love others as we would love ourselves. To put ourselves in other people's shoes, to feel empathy for their situation. And to treat them in the same manner we ourselves would want to be treated in, in that situation. This is not super confusing. It's difficult. It's challenging. But this is an anchor that we can hold on to. Other things get confusing. This is how we're called to think. This is how we're called to act. This is how we're called to live in the world. We're called to live radical lives of sacrificial service. Generous lives. I think that you and I are called to speak truth to power in a civil way. But it goes much deeper and more importantly beyond just speaking our opinions. I think how we live and how we act is often an important way for us to speak truth to power. How we bear witness to Christ and the reality of his kingdom. Our witness provides a contrast that makes clear what is available to the world in Christ. And what a world without Christ is missing. (laughs) And so there are different opinions about how we might fix the economy. How we might adjust certain things that we think are out of whack in our economy. And among Christians, there will always be different opinions about these things. And among Christians, there will be some who probably are more informed with their opinion, and others who are are less informed with their opinion. I'm going to always be on that other side, the less informed. But it's pretty clear how Christians themselves are called to live economically. It's pretty clear the church's responsibility to each other. And so while there might be a growing wealth inequality in the world, or certain pay gaps, or whatever you might want to highlight, or think about, or talk about, or address, the church can provide a contrast. And say, well, in our community, we take care of one another voluntarily. Because of the work of the Spirit in our hearts, because of the call of Christ on our lives, we work within our own selves to address those who don't have enough. Those of us who have more than we need, sacrifice. Not because we have to, because we've been so transformed by the Spirit. When the world wonders how we can possibly give health care to everybody, or what the best way is to provide health care to the most amount of people, the church will have opinions, differing opinions, 
But inside of the church, there's a much clearer call that we can live out and bear witness to, form a contrast to, and say, well, in our community, when someone needs health care and they're unable to get it, we rally around them. We give generously, sacrificially, of our own resources and time. We make sure that those people have a health care. Now, perhaps can we ever expect a government to perform some of these functions? I'm of the opinion that maybe that's an unrealistic expectation. But it's hard to expect a government to act in the same way as a community that's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. I, I can't imagine a government and a military forgiving their enemies and not acting back towards their enemies. I don't think it works, right? I, I think convincing arguments have been made a nation doesn't survive that way. So it hurts you, it hurts one of your citizens, and you're like, forgiveness. I, don't, I think you're on the clock, probably, as a nation. But there's a high contrast to <coughs> forgiveness and enemy love inside of the church. Made possible because of Jesus and his work in our lives. We speak truth to power, I think, primarily by how we bear witness. And then if needed, of course, we can civilly disobey. <laughs> These, though, are conversations I think need to be, that need to be had in communities, in prayer, in discernment. Not as individuals separated from one another in our own silos of opinions and political partisan um, parties. Another conclusion that I could draw and want to draw this morning is that you and I, I think, should commit ourselves to honoring the ambiguity of the political realm. Going along with this first notion. Christians of good faith, of morality, who love Jesus deeply, have very differing opinions on very controversial issues. And we need to accept that. We need to stop expecting that you can't possibly be a Christian if you don't come to my opinion about this. We need to allow the fact that there's going to be diversity. And we have to be okay with that. Reasonable people differ on important issues. Which leads me to my next conclusion, which is we can't at any point allow ourselves to get sucked into the toxic and divisive, divisive political rhetoric of our day or partisan battles of our day, which means we can't demonize other people over our differences. We can't slander character because of a difference of opinion. We can't ascribe bad intentions because of a difference of opinion. We can't choose to attack and tear down simply because we differ in opinion. I think it also means we should avoid the blame game. This is one of the number one rules of our toxic political environment. Assign blame. Both parties do this pretty well. One party gets in power, and they blame most of the ills of their time on the previous administration or policies. Rinse and repeat over and over and over. There might be some helpfulness to this in terms of like what policies in general help and what policies in general hurt or push this way or push that way. <laughs> But say I'm talking to someone in the church, the body of Christ, brother or sister in Christ, and we have a differing opinion on something, a uh, current issue of the day that is um, being addressed in our political realm. Um, I think it's wrong and to be avoided for us to try to assign blame. I think you're working backwards. You're dividing. And you're not really seeking a solution at that point. To say, you and your policies and the things you said back then, that's why we're in the situation we're in right now. All you're doing there is trying to divide, trying to tear down, trying to demonize. 
Instead, you might be able to just more civilly agree there's a problem. You think there's a problem, and I think there's a problem. And regardless of whose fault it might be, it's probably neither of us' fault, it's those people. What could we do to make it better? <coughs> what can we do in the church to make it better? What things can we find common ground on to make it better? I think we'd be surprised at how much common ground there actually is between even hyper-partisan um, political people. We shouldn't divide in the church. Um, any engagement or discussion um, around the government or politics that divides um, is anti-Christ. Christ prays and has come for the church to be unified, to be one. It doesn't mean we have to share the same opinions. It means that we stay united in love and support and commitment for one another. In the moment your political differences start to separate you out from another person, you need to go back to the drawing board. The church is more like a loving, respectful, and committed family who has their differences than it is a 24-hour cable news network. Our 24-hour cable news networks were created for 9-11. For a huge breaking story that deserves wall-to-wall coverage, 24-7. And without such an event, <coughs> fortunately or unfortunately, fortunately that there aren't such events, but unfortunately, these companies are not going to then, when you tune in, say, nothing super important happening, go watch some sports. They have to gin up urgency. <coughs> they have to gin up demons. They have to gin up fights. They have to gin up fear. So that you feel, no, you need to stay tuned. Our whole democracy rides on this one discussion. You could be killed as a result of this one policy discussion. This could destroy your entire family and economic status in the world. It's a sensationalist machine. It serves to divide, to heighten, to bring anxiety and division and fear. And note that all of these things are opposed to what God has come to bring in Christ and through his kingdom. It's come to bring peace and unity comfort and mission and purpose we have to stay away from this toxic environment and rhetoric and battles and the last one I have for us this morning is, is as Christians we, we need to refuse to allow ourselves to become cynical I'm not referring here primarily to the p- political realm or arena though I don't think it's very helpful there as well um the way that the world works, the way that our experiences sometimes um, dictate to us is that it's easy to become cynical, to think things just aren't going to get fixed. I'm guilty of this all the time. This issue is never going to be solved. Right? Um, it's not even worth having this conversation with people. Because we're just talking past each other. I'm not going to be convinced. They're not going to be convinced. And it's not because one of us is better than the other. That's just the world that we're living in right now. This is the environment that we're in right now. Perhaps there's degrees of truth to this in the political realm. But this should never be the case in the realm of life for Christians. The realm of life, the cosmos, the world, world history is one of hope for Christians. It's one that acknowledges that one day Christ through the Spirit will make all things new. It's one that holds fast to the promise in Matthew that Jesus gave us that the gates of hell won't stand strong against the church. This is an offensive metaphor, not a defensive one. The idea here is that the church is advancing in righteousness and justice and it will eventually march right up to the gates of hell, to evil's last stand, 
and it won't hold. They'll be broken, and life will flood the entire universe. The life of Christ, the peace of the Spirit. This is a type of hope, not cynicism, that Christians are called to believe and inhibit and live their lives in. Martin Luther King Jr. once said about justice <clears throat> politically, um, that the arc of the universe, while long, bends towards justice. What he means there is that it might not be a straight line always, but over a long period of time, the world, world history, bends towards justice and not away from it. So that even if things are bad right now, even if we've taken a left turn, we should trust that justice wins out. Perhaps not even in our own generation, that it tends that way. We're going to have to be more confident revising the statement to a Christian one. Saying the arc of world history, although perhaps long, and not always a straight line, bends towards, fully and ultimately, the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. It bends toward the glory of God filling creation as water fills the ocean. And this is a cause for a hopeful posture that we inhabit in the world. This is a cause for you and I to continue to fight the good fight, for you and I to continue to stay united as one people, for you and I to continue to worship Christ and go out with confidence and enthusiasm by the chances we have to spread his word, to spread the good news, to work towards, in big and small ways, justice, while avoiding the petty fights that often sidetrack so many people. We pray with me? Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for the ability that we have to think through how we might live in a world um, that has um, been characterized more and more um, by fighting, uh, been characterized more and more by division, um, characterized more and more by um, temptation to just so easily baptize or sprinkle Jesus onto one party one politician or one issue. We pray that you would give us the wisdom to discern the appropriate stance for us to take in the world. We pray that you would give us the courage to not wait for government or to trust in chariots and horses, but to instead move forward with confidence in the name of the Lord our God. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit.